turn in the sacred scriptures to Psalm 15. Let us hear the word of God in Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. On the basis of this psalm and the entire word of God, we turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 37 on page 22 in the Psalter. We are continuing the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the Ten Commandments. Having looked at the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, Catechism takes one Lord's Day to focus on a specific application of the third commandment concerning the proper or lawful use of oaths. That is the subject of Lord's Day 37. Question 101 asks, may we then swear religiously by the name of God? Yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects, or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word, and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. Which honor is due to no creature? I said in my haste, all men are liars. So said David in Psalm 116, verse 11. And as David says, he said that in haste. In a moment or in a period in his life when he was going through intense troubles, some of which were caused by the treachery of those he thought he could trust. All men are liars, and yet there is a kernel of truth in that hasty word of David, for, as we know, fallen man of himself, apart from God's grace, is a servant of the lie. And even redeemed children of God 
who yet have that old man of sin, are prone to lies and deceit. Mankind in general is dishonest and untrustworthy. Man seeks not the truth, but will bend the truth and try to manipulate the truth to conform to his will and for his advantage. And we all know the reality of that. All you have to do is watch the news to see that. But it's this reality of life in a fallen world that makes the subject of Lord's Day 37 appropriate and important for us yet today. Due to the inherent deceitfulness and untrustworthiness of man, there are times when the swearing of oaths is necessary and prudent in order to confirm fidelity and truth. The swearing of an oath involves the calling upon God's name, calling upon God to bear witness to the truth, so as to give assurance that one speaks the truth, insofar as such assurance can be given. Because the swearing of an oath, or the making of a vow, involves the use of God's name, this subject is connected with Lord's Day 36, which treats the third commandment of God's law. Subject of the oath may at first glance seem remote to us, but it is not true. It's rather rare that you or I swear oaths or make vows, and that's the way it should be. That should be something rare in our lives. Nonetheless, when we do swear an oath or make a vow, that is something of the utmost importance, something very weighty. And thus we do well to understand the nature of an oath or a vow. And thus the instruction of our catechism, even though it is connected with the historical circumstances at the time in which it was written, the controversy that the Reformed had with the Anabaptists over the permissibility of the use of the oath, though we might be somewhat removed from that historical context, though not entirely, because there are many yet today who would maintain that old Anabaptist position, But nonetheless, this is a subject of weightiness and importance for us. Because we take vows. Or may be called upon by the magistrate for some reason or another to swear an oath. So we see that the application of Lord's Day 37 is not limited merely to the rare instances when the civil authorities may require an oath from us, but has application for the vows that we take in our Christian lives. You can think of some of the main ones. When we make confession of faith. When we marry in the Lord. When we bring a child to be baptized. or When a man is ordained into office in the church. On each of those occasions, vows are made. That's important. Now, there has been some debate, some discussion over the difference between an oath and a vow. An oath involves the calling upon God's name in order to verify, in order to confirm the truth of something that you say, whereas a vow is often spoken directly to God. There is a slight difference between the two, but the difference is slim. And so, this Lord's Day applies to both. And the biblical justification for applying this Lord's Day, both to oaths and vows, can be found, for example, in Numbers 30, verse 2, where Oaths and vows are put together and spoken about in the same breath. 
If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. Numbers 30 verse 2. And so we can talk about both this morning. This subject is also relevant because of the cultural atmosphere in which we live. I think we can all readily recognize that our culture is one in which oaths and vows are casually disregarded. You can see that in our society's view of marriage, for example. One's commitment to one's spouse is something so easily discarded. And that's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. When we take an oath or make a vow, God holds us to it. And His honor, His glory is involved. And to cast aside an oath, to be unfaithful to a vow, is not only a sin against the one to whom that vow was made, but it's first of all and ultimately a sin against the name of God. Very important, very applicable for us. And because of the cultural atmosphere in which we live, how much more needful is this instruction? Because as we live in this cultural atmosphere and breathe in the air of the world, it very easily has its influence on the way we think, the way we see things. So let the Word of God come to us and speak to us on this important subject of the oath. We consider Lord's Day 37 on the basis of Psalm 15 under the theme, Honoring God's Name with the Oath. We're going to consider the subject under two points. Considering first the swearing of it, how we honor God's name in the proper swearing of religious oaths, and then finally, keeping it. God's name is honored through the keeping of oaths and vows. We begin where we must, namely with the oath itself. We have to understand what this thing called an oath is. In question and answer 102, while it is explaining the reasons why we may not swear by the name of a saint or any other creature, while giving that explanation, the Catechism also gives us a nice definition of what an oath is. A lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. So from the beginning we see that an oath is something special. It's something more than making a statement, or making a promise, or giving someone your word. It is more than asserting something to be true. I understand that's not to say that keeping one's word is less important or that there's less of a need to keep your promises than an oath. Oh no, the ninth commandment calls us to be faithful to all of our words. But when we swear an oath, we understand we're doing something special. There's something unique about an oath because when an oath is taken, God's name is invoked or called upon in a special way. We call upon the name of the one true and living God to confirm, as the first question and answer explains, to confirm fidelity, faithfulness. 
sincerity, to confirm fidelity, and truth. An oath is calling God to be our witness. We understand that concept. You're in court and you give testimony. The testimony you speak is confirmed and strengthened, verified, substantiated, supported when a witness comes and gives a testimony that agrees with what you have said. That's the idea. When we take an oath, we call on God to be our witness. We call upon God as our witness to testify in support of the truth that we speak. And the purpose then of the oath is to give assurance to someone that we speak the truth. To give them assurance insofar as we are able. You call upon God to witness, bear witness that what you say is true. Or you call upon God to bear witness that the commitment you have made, you are sincere in the making of it. And that you will follow through and carry out what you said you would do. Calling upon God to bear witness to the truth of what we say and to hold us to the commitments we have made. And the oath then is a calling upon God who is the highest witness and the supreme judge. There is no higher court of appeals that you can go to. There is no better witness for God is the all-knowing and everywhere present God. Proverbs 15 verse 13. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He knows all things. Jeremiah 17 verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The innermost recesses of the human heart are open and visible to the eyes of the all-seeing God. Nothing can be hidden from him. He is therefore the supreme and highest witness. He knows all. He can never be deceived. The wool can never be pulled over God's eyes. And so when an oath is taken, appeal is made to the all-seeing God. And the oath taker says, I call upon God who knows the truth to bear witness that what I say is true. And with that, punish me if I swear falsely. The oath calls upon God not only to bear witness, but also to be judge. As the all-knowing witness, God is also the perfectly just judge. You see, an oath has teeth, so to speak. The oath taker says, judge me, O Lord, if I speak falsely or if I go back on my word. Now, understand that when we take an oath or make a vow, we're not saying, God, condemn me to hell if I break this oath. We're not saying, God, send a lightning bolt from heaven to destroy me if I go back on my word. But what we are saying is, I make this statement or this commitment before the eyes of God and He will hold me accountable according to His wisdom, in His timing and in His way. And God 
who made the oath, as scripture shows us, and who gives the oath as something to be used rightfully in the society of men and among his people, God will hold oath takers to their oaths. He will. He will. And he will judge those who swear falsely. If the one who goes back on his word is one of God's own children, he will chasten that child. Chasten him to bring him to repentance. And if the oath taker who goes back on his oath is not one of God's people, one of the reprobate wicked, God will judge him severely and his guilt will be aggravated. So we see that the oath is calling upon God to bear witness to the truth that I speak or to hold me to a commitment that I have made. And the purpose of that oath then as we alluded to already, is to give the strongest possible assurance and certainty that what you say is true. That's what an oath does. Hebrews 6 verse 16, for example, says this, For men verily swear by the greater, and that greater is God. And an oath for confirmation is to them the end of all strife. Taking an oath gives the strongest possible assurance that what you say is true. And of course, that presumes that the oath taker is a believer. You see that it makes no sense to take an oath if one does not have faith. Because taking an oath is calling upon the name of God. So often, an unbeliever might take an oath, but it doesn't mean a whole lot to him. Because he rejects God. He doesn't bring himself before the face of the Almighty God who knows his heart. But for the believer, when he or she takes an oath, it is a matter of the utmost seriousness. The believer is conscious of the fact that I am going before the face of God and calling upon Him to bear witness to the truth of what I speak. And a believer trembles at the thought of doing that deceitfully or falsely. And thus, among believers, an oath is the highest confirmation of one's word. The oath taker calls God to be his witness and calls God to chasten him sorely should he go back on that word or swear falsely. An oath clears away uncertainty. That's its purpose. That's its purpose. Now, before we move on to look briefly at the biblical ground, the permissibility of the use of such oaths, we must very briefly look at a few misuses of the oath, which Lord's Day 36 pointed out and which connect here. Because the oath is calling upon God's name, it is only to be used in fear and reverence for God. And therefore, the believer ought studiously to avoid any form of oath-taking or vow-making which does not give due honor to the name of God. And there are a few such misuses. The most blatant one, of course, is perjury, swearing falsely, lying under oath. That's serious. Think about it. An oath is calling God to be witness. When a man swears falsely, lies under oath, he is calling upon God to bear false witness. That dishonors God's name and kindles his wrath. 
but also swearing rashly, hastily, frivolously, thoughtlessly, carelessly, not approaching the oath with the sufficient measure of gravity that it is due. Swearing disobediently. What does that mean? It means to take an oath or make a vow to do something that is contrary to God's word. When a man does that, he calls upon God to hold him to a commitment that is contrary to God's will. In essence, it's calling upon God to do something that is against his own word. You understand then that if somebody makes such a sinful vow, they vow to do something that is wrong or sinful, they are not obligated to fulfill that vow. That would simply heap sin upon sin. One example we do well to remind ourselves of in this connection is the reason why we as churches forbid membership in labor unions, lodges, and secret societies. So many of these things, despite having a whole host of other problems with them, so many unions, lodges, secret societies require of their members the swearing of an oath of allegiance. An oath that they will uphold that institution's values, that institution's practices. And no Christian may do that. Our allegiance is to Christ the King alone. His word we uphold. We bind ourselves to Him. Our allegiance may not be unconditionally given to any sort of human institution. Especially one such as a labor union or a lodge, or a secret society whose principles and practices are thoroughly, often thoroughly opposed to the Scriptures. And so in connection with the oath, there's one reason why Christians ought not to be members of such institutions. They may not bind themselves by oath to those institutions of men. Lord's, or rather, question and answer 102 introduces another way that the oath is misused. Swearing by the name of saints, angels, or any other creature. And the reason this is wrong is clear to us. What is an oath? It's calling upon God, the only one who knows the heart. Calling upon him to bear witness to the truth of my words. Calling upon God, the almighty God, to hold me accountable to the, for the commitments I have made. Only God can fulfill that role. No angel can look into your heart. No creature is all-knowing or everywhere present. No creature, no matter how great he is, can serve as the witness and the judge. And therefore, to swear by the name of a saint, a creature, or anything, is to elevate that creature to the place of God. Swearing by saints or other creatures becomes not only a sin against the third commandment, but against the first. It renders unto that creature honor which belongs to God alone. So that's the oath. Now let's look at why in the Reformed churches we understand the oath to be permissible and even at times necessary. The Catechism emphasizes the point to us that the swearing of oaths is biblical. Of course, historically, there are many objections to the use of the oath, but none of these can stand up against the simple truth that is stated at the end of answer 101. The oath is founded upon God's word and justly used by saints in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Some have tried to explain that away. Well, the use of oaths, you find a lot of oaths in the Old Testament. That was a concession of God to the Old Testament time. But in the New Testament, we ought not to swear in any way, shape, or form. That's contradicted by the fact that you can find the use of oaths in the New Testament. But come to Psalm 15, verse 4. Psalm 15, verse 4, includes among the characteristics of the godly a mark of Christian character is this, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. The psalm simply assumes that this is something that a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ does at different points in his life. He swears. The characteristic of Christian conduct laid out here is not this, that he avoids all swearing altogether, but that when he swears and it ends up costing him, he does not go back on his word. But the most significant of all the proofs that the oath is lawful is the fact that God himself swore an oath to his people. God himself has sworn an oath to confirm fidelity and truth in his covenant promise to save his people from their sins, to save his people by raising up a seed, the seed of the woman, the promised Savior, who would redeem his people and establish his covenant. God swore an oath in confirmation of that covenant promise. And you find that throughout the scriptures. Call your attention to Genesis 22 verses 16 through 18. Where we find one of the first instances of this oath that God swore. He swore to Father Abraham, the father of all believers. And thus, this is an oath that God swore in confirmation of fidelity and truth to all the children of Abraham, believers. Genesis 22 verse 16, 17, and 18. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. There's the covenant promise God gave to Abraham. And God confirmed it by an oath. And that promise throughout covenant history develops and is enlarged and clarified. And likewise, the oath that God swore. So for example, Psalm 132 verse 11 refers to the covenant promise as God gave it to David. Which promise was also confirmed by a divine oath. Psalm 132 verse 11. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. There God confirms Fidelity and truth 
of his covenant promise that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from the very loins of David and that God would establish his kingdom forever. God is an oath-swearing God. Now, that brings us to the question, why would God swear an oath? After all, an oath is meant to confirm truth, to give assurance that the word I speak is true and that the commitment I made, I will follow through and carry it out. Why would God have to give added assurance? Is not the mere word of the God who cannot lie, is not his mere word enough? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. But here we see one of a multitude of examples in Scripture how God is mindful of our human frailty. And He comes down to our level and He takes something that is in use among men, the oath, in order to emphasize in the strongest possible way His faithfulness to us. That's why He took an oath. That's what the Word of God itself says in Hebrews 6, verse 17. Reflecting on this oath that God swore to Abraham and to the fathers throughout covenant history. Hebrews 6, verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that is, willing to show the absolute certainty of all that he has planned, all that he has promised, that it cannot change and will not change, in order to show the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And because God can swear by no higher, for there is no higher than himself, verse 13 of the same chapter says, for when God made Promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater. He swear by himself. God took an oath to emphasize to you and to me and to all the heirs of the promise. The absolute certainty of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And that every one of his words to us are yea and amen in Christ. And now we take that truth and we apply it personally. Think about what that means. All of the promises of scripture that God speaks to you, believer, are confirmed by this oath that God swore to show to you the immutability of his counsel. That's comforting. That's assuring. But now to back up and go, go back to what the main point was. This shows us the oath is permissible. God himself swore an oath. But now... Though permissible, the oath should be reserved for times of necessity when it's demanded or when a special occasion requires it. So, 
The last point I want to make here at the end of the first point is that though the oath is lawful and has its proper use, it ought to be rare. It ought to be. And here's where we can bring in the instruction of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, verses 34 through 37. Really, any instruction on the oath can't ignore this instruction of Jesus Christ. We have to look at it and we have to understand it. Because this is the main passage that people go to who oppose the use of the oath and say, look, Jesus says you can't swear oaths at all. But what we'll see is that Jesus here does not forbid all oaths universally, entirely. But he forbids specific kinds of oaths and gives the general teaching that the oath ought to be rare in the lives of his people because of what it is. Something special and unique. So let's read together Matthew 5 verses 34 through 37. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Yes, at at first glance it appears Jesus is completely forbidding the use of an oath or the making of vows. Swear not at all. But we understand that when we come to Scripture, words have to be interpreted in context. Context is crucial for understanding the meaning. The context of the passage itself, as well as all of Scripture. And when we put those words into context, we understand what Jesus is saying. He is not giving a blanket statement forbidding all oaths entirely. But his statement, swear not at all, is explained and unpacked by the words that follow. Swear not at all, that is, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, and all of the rest. What Jesus is doing here is he is addressing... A sinful use of the oath that had become commonplace in his day. The Jews would swear by all sorts of things other than God. By heaven, by earth, by the temple, by the treasury, by their own head. Pharisees had devised these other forms of oath taking because it allowed them to evade the weightiness of the obligation that an oath would ordinarily take upon you. What Jesus here is addressing is the sinful use of the oath Swearing by other creatures, which dishonors the name of God by rendering unto a creature the honor due to God. Jesus is forbidding frivolous, trivial taking of oaths. But Jesus is not here forbidding the proper religious use of the oath. And that's clear. Otherwise, Jesus would contradict God himself. God swore an oath. And if someone is going to say, well, you can't swear an oath at all because Jesus says anything more than yea, nay, yea, yea, or nay, nay comes from evil, well, 
then why did God say something more than yay, yay? He doesn't need to confirm his word. His word is truth, and yet God swore an oath. Interpreted in light of all of Scripture and in context, we see Jesus does not forbid all oath-swearing, but forbids wrong kinds of oath-swearing. Yes, in our daily conversation, our yay should be yay and our nay should be nay. Meaning, in our communication with one another, we ought to be honest, open, and trustworthy people. There shouldn't be a need time and time again to call upon God as our witness. Oh, this should be rare. Because among the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, honesty, openness, and truthfulness ought to prevail. But that's not to say that an oath which goes beyond yea is necessarily wrong. After all, Jesus How often did he say, verily, verily, I say unto you, amen, amen, I say unto you. That's going beyond a simple yay. Because there were circumstances in which that was necessary for the Lord to emphasize the truth of what he was saying. Yes, anything more than these cometh from evil. That doesn't mean anything more than yea is evil. What that means is the reality of sin and the reality of the fallen world and the reality of the inherent dishonesty of mankind has its source in evil. The oath is necessary at times because of the existence of evil and sin. We don't live in a perfect world. There's no perfect people. That's why the oath is sometimes necessary. You wouldn't say, well, the oath wouldn't be necessary in a perfect society. It's not necessary in heaven, so it shouldn't be used here below. Well, in a perfect society, in a perfect world, you wouldn't need the police either. That doesn't mean we should get rid of the police. The reality of evil necessitates the existence of law enforcement, even though that law enforcement won't be necessary in the kingdom of heaven, in perfection. Same is true of the oath. So we see it is permissible, but ought to be rare. So when? When do we swear an oath? Well, the catechism explains that oaths are at times necessary when the civil authorities require them of us. The powers that be are instituted, put in place by God, and one of the tools that God has given the civil government for the protection of its citizens, for the punishment of evildoers, and the protection of well-doers is the power and the right to require of its citizens oaths. The most common use of that oath is in the court of law. But the catechism is not only setting before us that reality that the civil government has the right at times to require an oath of us, but the application is more personal there we come back to those things mentioned in the introduction. The reality of important vows that are taken at important junctures in the Christian life. Confession of faith, marriage, baptism, ordination. In our Psalter, we have liturgical forms 
for all of those occasions, and three of them take place in the worship service of the church. They are weighty and important matters. And in all of those liturgical forms, there are questions. Questions that are asked of the person coming to confess their faith. Questions that are asked of the husband and wife-to-be. Questions that are asked of the parents presenting their child for baptism or the man who stands to be ordained or installed into office in the church. And those questions, they're not just things you have to answer to move on. The way you sometimes have to fill out a survey online to get past it and get into what you're supposed to be doing. Those questions, when answered affirmatively, are a vow. A vow before God and in the presence of his people. Weighty and important, that is. And when we vow such a vow in sincerity of faith, it honors God, honors his name. But now, the honoring of God's name with the vow and with the oath Involves more than just making it. It Involves keeping it. Here's where we finish this morning. Thinking about the keeping. Of the oath. And the vow. Faithfulness. That's really the idea. Faithfulness. An oath. A vow requires. Faithfulness. Holding to the word I spoke, the commitment I made, holding to it, following through, carrying it out, regardless of the circumstances in which I find myself. Faithfulness. Is it not a reality of the world and indeed our sinful nature too, that man is unfaithful? Thus Psalm 12 begins, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone, with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. That's the world, that's our sinful nature. Swearing an oath, taking a vow, you might say is the easier part. But then comes the keeping of it. God calls us to keep our oaths and our vows. That's Psalm 15. I especially picked this psalm because of that last part of verse 4. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. That's what the child of God is to be. We sang from Psalter 24, a versification of that psalm. And it's versified well. The title of the Psalter number is Tests of Christian Character. Here is a mark of the believer. A mark of one in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. A mark of one who has the new life of Jesus Christ. This is a test of Christian character and a mark of Christian character. From his vow, he will not waver, though it bring him sad reward. That's not the world we live in, is it? 
That's not what our sinful flesh desires. Cultural atmosphere in which we live, and it can be so stifling at times, is one in which the message is, do what you feel like. The most important thing is you. You might make a vow, you might take an oath at that time in those circumstances, but then things change. You can't be expected to be faithful to that vow till death do you part. In the case of marriage, you have to look out for yourself first. And thus the philosophy of the world is, as soon as it hurts, you can't be expected to keep your vow. Because the philosophy of the world is the philosophy of the devil, which is self-first. What pleases me first. That's the inclination of our sinful nature too. And we know that. Know that. Sinful nature says, I'll be faithful so long as it suits me. I'll keep my word so long as it's advantageous to me. I'll keep my promise so long as I feel like it. But when things change, or it costs me, or it requires something hard of me, then I will exert myself in finding some way out, some excuse that justifies in my own mind not holding fast to that vow. Ultimately, for sinful man, commitment is conditional. And it's conditioned upon me getting what I want. Thus, in the world, sadly in the church, marriages blow up. Husband and wife aren't getting what they want from each other. It's hardship. Can't go on. Done. Things have changed. Never mind those vows I made. Things have changed. The word of God says, no. No. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. You understand, the psalm isn't talking about someone who made a foolish and rash oath and now it comes back to bite him. The psalm is talking about someone made a promise, made an oath, made a vow. And then circumstances changed and it costed him. There was hurt. There was hardship that came from it. And yet he did not change. Faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's what the word of God calls the believer to with regard to every oath that he takes. And with regard to those vows that we make. Faithfulness. Even when it costs. And so you can apply that to those vows. I dare say for many of us, we probably haven't taken an oath at the requirement of the civil government. But for very, mon- for very many of us, we have made vows. Whether recently or long ago. Are you a confessing member of the church? Made a vow. What does keeping that vow entail? 
means loving the church, loving God's people, coming, being here, living a new life. Means, yes, submitting to church government. And in case you should become delinquent to church discipline. That's not a meaningless question. When we say yes to that. We say yes to God. God who put that church government in place. That means, even when we disagree with some of the things that the church does. Or, we're not getting along with the elders. Or we're put under discipline for a sin in our lives that we're not confessing or repenting. We work with the elders and submit and receive their instruction. We don't jump ship. We don't jump ship when something's not going the way we want it to in the church. This vow ought to weigh upon us. It's more than words spoken into the air. So young people, as you look ahead to making confession of faith, understand that this isn't just a custom, it's not just what you do, it's not just the next step so that you can come to the Lord's table, but you're going to make a beautiful vow to God and before his people. Understand what's implied there, so that when those questions are asked to you, you may answer them from the heart and with understanding. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an act of worship. I promise my faithfulness, O God. Marriage, marriage. Those vows of marriage, how important they are when husband and wife speak them. It's over in a couple of seconds. Sometimes when husband and wife are up in the front of church and they speak them, their minds are racing, they're just trying to get the words out. But though those words are spoken and they're over in a moment, those vows are for a lifetime. Till death do we part. I vow to love, to cherish, to be exclusively faithful to you, my wife, to you, my husband. I pledge before God. That doesn't wear off over time. That's not conditioned upon your circumstances. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. It's a vow before God. God, for God, and that ought to shape how we live in our marriages, how we deal with problems in our marriages. There are problems, there is sin. Husband and wife come together, they're united in a one flesh union. Two sinners who are going to sin against each other, there's going to be problems. The word of God gives us the guidance for the resolution of those problems. And the solution to those problems is not forsaking our vows. So the world says, you run into trouble, you stop feeling like it, you fall out of love, just jump ship. No. Even when it costs us. For better, for worse, sickness and in health, riches, poverty, and all the rest, those words have meaning. They're not just uttered during the service. Because they sound nice. They have meaning. And God remembers them. May we remember them too. Young people, as you seek a spouse, as you look ahead towards marriage, 
Go forward with that understanding. It's vows that you make. Beautiful, weighty. Understand marriage for what it is. It's a lifelong bond and commitment. God gives the grace to his people to be faithful to those vows, to flourish marriage. God calls us to keep our vows for his glory. Here's where we have to end, looking up unto God. For as we hear the call to keep our vows and to keep our oaths, we're impressed with our own sinfulness and our own weakness because not one of us has done it perfectly. Our sin is shown to us. Thus we must look to God, who is not only the oath-swearing God, but the perfect oath-keeping God. God swore to save you from your sins, believer, and God keeps that oath. He swore to give his son for you. Oh, how it cost him. Oh, how it cost him. God swore to his own hurt, you might say, and changeth not. To save you, to save me from our sins, he gave his only begotten son to the death of the cross. And as we've been going through the the Passion Week history in the Gospel of Luke, we have seen, have we not, how much it cost God to keep that oath. The bloody sweat of the Lord Jesus in the garden as he looked ahead to taking that cup full of the wrath of God against all of your sins and mine, including your oath-breaking and mine, and your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness to our vows. That was in the cup too. And Jesus took that cup and he drank that cup on the cross. And on the cross, there we see the faithfulness of the oath-keeping God who would give his Son before breaking his oath to you. How thankful. How thankful does that make us to see God not turning back on his oath, though it cost him so much. How grateful we are to see that blood of Christ which covers all our sins. That blood of Christ, which brings us into God's tabernacle in his holy hill. Though our hands are unclean, and though we often speak deceitfully, yet Christ, He is the Holy One. He is the one ultimately spoken about in Psalm 15. Yes, Psalm 15 describes Christian character, what we are by the grace of God, but first of all, it describes the man of God, Jesus Christ, and all that He was for us. He obeyed the law. He fulfilled it for us. He went up to Calvary's hill, suffered and died. The end of his perfectly obedient life. And that righteousness, that faithfulness is accounted as ours. So that we stand before God clothed in the robes of the obedient Christ. He is faithful. Faithful to us. Now in thankfulness, let us be faithful to him. There's our ultimate motive for vow keeping. God, what he's done for me, thanks to oath-keeping Jehovah. Amen.
Blessed God and Heavenly Father, we pray that Thou wilt bless this Word to our hearts, even as we have considered what Thy Word teaches about the lawful oath. May our hearts especially be thrilled by the Gospel, which sets before us Thy oath-keeping in Jesus Christ. May thankfulness well up in our souls, and may it carry us forward to be faithful in our vows, in marriage, in the church, For the glory of thy name, the honor of thy name. This all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.